It's the Rush Fancast. Steve and Jerry, we are back. Jerry, how's it going? It's going great, Steve. How's it going with you? It's going terrific. It's the first time we've recorded this late, I think, in a while. That's true. Do you mean like the time of day? Yeah, it's it's about 20 after 9 on a Friday night. 20 minutes past my bedtime. I don't know if you can hear the crickets. I have my windows open. I cannot hear the crickets. I miss crickets at night, Steve. It's kind of like a farewell to kings, except nighttime. <laughs> Instead of birds chirping, you hear the, the crickets in the background. And the crickets are the birds of the night. Exactly. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are the RushCast. Email, we are the RushCast at gmail.com. The emails keep pouring in. We keep appreciating them, and Jerry wants more and more. He doesn't have enough to do. I don't. And the bass intro, as always, is done by our good pal Lex. We thank Lex for doing the bass intro, as we always do. Thanks, Lex. And today, Jer, on the Rush Fancast, we are going to be talking about Signals. I know. We haven't talked about an album in oh, about a month. Over a month. We've had some great interviews, and I yeah. really enjoyed talking to all the people we did. Howard yep. Ungerleader was amazing. David Calcano was amazing. Yep. Jillian was amazing. Joe Bergamini was amazing. Uh-huh. And who else did we talk to? John Petuto. That's right. He was, he was amazing. He was. Five interviews in a row. An amazing cast of characters. Really? Really? I'm very impressed with us. You should be, Steve. I'm also very impressed with the Twitter polls we've been doing, Jer. And I've got one for you. Okay. We talked about moving pictures not too long ago. Nope. Seems like yesterday. Side one of moving pictures. Four incredible songs. And I put yes. them up as a poll. What's your favorite song on side one of moving pictures? I'm not asking what's your favorite. I'm asking what you think the Twitter fans think. Hmm. Do you want the choices? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Nobody needs the choices, but I got to give them to you anyway. Tom Sawyer, Red Barchetta, YYZ, and Limelight. What do you think? I'm going to say Limelight. You are incorrect. Wow, really? Limelight came in second, 29%. Uh-oh. Guess again. Uh, Red Barchetta? Red Barchetta. Very good. Really? 38% Red Barchetta. Nice. 29% Limelight. 16% tie for third place. YYZ and Tom Sawyer. Both mm-hmm. had 16%. Does that add up to 100%? Uh, I'm not doing the <laughs> math. You can't. You can't have any write-ins, right? For 1,156 <laughs> votes. So I think that's a pretty good sample size. Yeah, sure. That's a great number. Yeah, and Red Barchetta. It makes sense. I would have picked Red Barchetta as well out of those four. Oh, you see, I would have picked Limelight, which is why I said Limelight. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. So you have an email for us, Jer. The emails, as I mentioned, keep flying into the email box. I do have an email for you, Steve. Would I ever let you down? Uh, you just did. What I just I cut out was about five minutes of you <laughs> looking for the email, but now you found it. Thank you. I had printed it out and it got lost in the shuffle somewhere. So anyway, this is from Paul Crandall. Hey, Paul. He says, hey guys, found your podcast a couple of months ago and marathoned the whole thing since. Been a Rush fanatic since 1985, like you guys, although it's been 1986 for us. I was 12, hands down my favorite band. 
Alex Lifeson is hands down my favorite guitarist and overall hero. There are no words to describe what his playing means to me or the depth of his influence over my own playing. Hmm. Uh, he's, a, he's a guitarist. So all that said, a couple of podcasts ago, you guys wondered if modern bands planned albums out for vinyl, as in song, order, length, and so on. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't remember which one it was on, though. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not, my memory's not that good. I just want to say as a musician who just went through that process, yes, definitely. We agonized over for months before landing on what would be the perfect song order and so on. The album ended up being almost exactly 40 minutes with about 20 minutes per side. We recorded 23 songs and cut eight to save for our second album, but could have easily released a two record 60 minute opus. Wow. That's a lot of music. It is. Incidentally, the album is in limbo right now, mainly because of COVID. Anyway, keep up the good work. Your podcasts make my work week just a little bit more tolerable. Nice. Very nice. Thanks for that email, Paul. He signed it. Paul Crandall, Slughammer guitarist. I guess that's the name of his band. Rush fan, composer, Paranaut guitarist, and recreational jackass. Just like us. <laughs> just like you and me. We have so much in common with Paul. Yeah, really. Thanks for that email, Paul. We'd love to hear your music when it comes out. Please send it along. Yes, thanks So speaking of music, Jer, we've got some music to talk about on the podcast today. Really? Signals. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, Rush music. So Rush music. Yeah. Exactly. Rush put out their ninth studio album on September 9th, 1982. We were 13 years old. <laughs> yeah. So right around the age Paul was. When he discovered Rush, if we had jumped in on Signals, which I wish we did, right, that would have been us. Yep. We did not. Their final album with Terry Brown. Terry mm -hmm. Brown produced this the last time he worked with Rush, and it was recorded at Le Studio in Marin Heights, Quebec. All true facts. All true facts. More true facts. Album peaked at number one in Canada, number three in the UK, number 10 in the United States. So it did very, very well off the heels of moving pictures. Yeah. Now, one thing I could not find, I always ask you what the, what the singles are from the album. Yes. I read somewhere there were five singles, but I only have four that I could verify were released as singles. Five singles. And I poured over it. I could not find the fifth one. Can you guess the, at least the four? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and guess. Subdivisions. Yes. New World Man. Yes. Um, the analog kid. Yes. And one more, right? Yes. Uh, chemistry. No, which, oh. well, it could have been if there were five, it might've been chemistry. Okay. But the fourth I have is countdown. Oh. And I know that for a fact, because I actually have the single, the vinyl single of countdown. You do? Where'd you get that? I actually own it. Did you buy that recently? Like No, I bought I bought it I bought it a long time ago. I, I just found it at a record store and I said, I gotta have that. What's on the other side? Uh, I think New World Man Live. Oh, nice. I think. Interesting, right? Do you, do you have do you have a little uh forty five adapter for your turntable so you can play it? It's not a forty five. No. Oh. It's a thirty three and a third. Is that what those are? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's a large single. Interesting, right? Yeah, I don't think I've ever, it's kind of a waste of vinyl, right? Or is it just stretched out? Is it like, are the grooves huge? So it's just stretched out across the whole thing. Huge grooves. Makes for better sound. Yeah, that's what I always say. 
That's what my grandmother used to say. Mm-hmm. And New World Man <laughs> was their only top 40 U.S. hit. Wow, really? Only time they cracked the top 40. New World Man. How about that? That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So Casey Kasem played New World Man on American oh Top God. 40. I would love to get a copy of that. I would. That would be great. Hear him do a long distance dedication <laughs> for New World Man. <laughs> that would be great. And here's the fact about Signals that blew me away, Jared. Went platinum in November 1982, two months after it was released. They sold a million copies in two months. That's amazing. Rush had arrived. Yeah. Is that, would you read that somewhere? Rush had arrived? No, I just said that. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, really, I mean, think about it. You sell a million copies in two months. You're big. Yeah, you're huge. Yeah. And after moving pictures, I mean, signals, people were clamoring for it. Right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. People just went out and bought it right away. So before we get into the music, Jarrow, do you want to talk about the album art? Sure. I know you recently bought Hugh Syme's book. Yes. So you've got all the facts on all the album art. There's nice tidbits in there. Hit me with some tidbits. Well, I have to say, I know we've talked about fam- our favorite album covers before, but for some reason, I don't know if I mentioned Signals. It's a great album cover. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so simple, but so perfect. Right. And kind of weird. Yeah. Even for Rush album covers, a dog sniffing at a hydrant. Because you know what he's going to do. Oh, yeah. He's going to send a signal of his own to all the other dogs. But it's brilliant in its simplicity. It is. So according to Hugh Symes' book, there's a bunch of things, a bunch of little things in it. He said that at first he wanted to reuse his idea for the EEG readings that he wanted to do on permanent waves. Right, right. Remember talking about that? He wanted to do that for signals, but they scrapped that idea. I guess it was a little too... Uh, straightforward you know what i mean yeah well that would have worked but yeah and he said that he's glad they didn't go with that because like the following year um synchronicity by the police came out and they kind of did kind of a similar look to their album true but they may not have done that if rush had done it first that's true we'll never know we will never know um he said that he found inspiration while he was walking past fire station 312 on yorkville ave in toronto there was a dalmatian outside of the fire station and that's when the idea came to him fire hydrant dalmatian yep and it really is iconic that image is associated with rush now really it is it's great and on the back you know the back cover has got like the like the subdivision map yeah this is where it gets here's where some interesting little Easter eggs are planted. The red push pins on the back uh, represent fire hydrants throughout the subdivision. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, because the fire hydrant on the cover is red. Mm-hmm. And the yellow line that connects them all mm-hmm. is meant to represent the dog going to the bathroom. Oh, really? On the fire hydrants and between the fire hydrants. So he's marked all the fire hydrants in Toronto. Yep. That's cool. Well, actually, at the, yeah, that's true. Did you know that there's a school named on the back? I did not notice that, no. You'll like this one. Warren Cromartie, secondary school. He's a baseball player. 
Yes, he played for the Montreal Expos back in the eighties. Yeah. So they named like a, a little a little secondary school on the map after him. Oh, that's cool. And yeah. he was playing at the time this album was released. I'm sure. Sure. I have no <laughs> idea who he is. He'll he was to, good. I'll have to. Was he? Yeah, he played for the Montreal Expos. What uh, What position did he play? Outfield. Okay. I think. Pretty sure. sure. I was young back then, Jer. I'm pretty sure he played outfield. <laughs> Some other tidbits. There's an old Dirk Road named after Getty's nickname Dirk. There's Line Drive. Line Drive, a baseball reference. Yeah. There's Lurkswood Mall named after Alex. Uh, Pratt and Associates Consulting Engineers. That's Neil. And supposedly the map is of the borough of Schmeng. 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 I should know what this is, <laughs> shouldn't I? Uh, yeah, I mean, you could look it up. Depend. You should look it up. Right now? Yeah, you have to look it up. No, no, look it up on your own time, everybody. And if you're, if you're uh, easily offended, don't look it up. <laughs> oh, you can't tell me what it is. I got it. I don't want to. I don't want to say what it is. Okay. Most most Rush fans already know this, though. I'm sure. I'm sure you might actually. This might be a regional thing, but you might know it as uh, Schmegma. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. So. There so Canadians call it Schmeng. I would imagine so. Um, I looked up, you know, I, I, when I Googled it to see what it was in reference to, I found that the, on uh, SCTV. Yes. Back in the early 80s, John Candy and Eugene Levy mm-hmm. played the Schmengi brothers, these <laughs> polka, polka duo. So I don't know when, it was in the early 80s, so I don't know if it was taken from the Schmengi brothers or Schmengi is just a very funny word to say. I don't know. Well, that's cool. That's, that's a lot of yeah. stuff in there. I know. You think it's just a dog peeing on a fire hydrant or sniffing a fire hydrant. You'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. It's much, much more. But you know, um, this book is fantastic. I keep on saying it. It's called The Art of Rush, correct? It's called The Art of Rush Serving a Life Sentence. And that's what he said all the time. Yeah. But he was happy to serve that life sentence. Yeah, I would be. Yeah. I mean, they paid him for a long time. They did. And you got to be happy about that. Yeah. It's always nice getting paid, right, Steve? Exactly. So before we talk about the songs themselves, shall we address the elephant in the room? I, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Well, this is the point where a lot of Rush fans dropped out. Oh, yeah. That's true. They heard signals, heard those keyboards. In subdivisions, as much as you and I love them, and many Rush fans do, and said, wait a minute, where's the guitars? Yeah, this isn't the same band, right? This isn't the same band. And how many of those fans didn't come back? I don't know. It's hard to tell. I mean, it's understandable in a way, because, you know, if you like a certain sound, because I'm, I consider myself a fan of a bunch of different artists, but I don't like all of their albums. You know what I mean? There's some points mm-hmm. in some careers where you're just like, oh, I just don't like the stuff they're doing anymore. That's true. But I still consider myself a fan. Yeah. No, no, I agree. I agree. But why is it that you and I and most Rush fans feel like you should like every Rush album? Why is that? Um, I just think it's because Rush is more of a, a, a club. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to join, if you're going to be in a club, you have to be a diehard in that group. 
whatever, a ping pong club, you got to be really into ping pong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that's what it's, I think that's really what it's about is that, you know, there's so many people who are so into Rush and then to have somebody says like, oh, I'm a huge Rush fan too, uh, up to 1982. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just not mm-hmm. all of the same, it's not the same kind of feeling. I think it only took 51 episodes, Jer, for us to compare Rush to ping pong. Yeah. We should uh, compare them to uh, other tiddlywinks. Kind of ga- <laughs> tiddlywinks. <laughs> Marbles. <laughs> Maybe. You know those marble enthusiasts. Oh, you know what? Totally off topic. My younger daughter and I are watching uh, the Marble Olympics on YouTube. Are these the marble races, those things? Yeah. I love that. I know it's crazy, right? They're so good. <laughs> well, you know what it is with, with all this COVID-19 stuff. I love watching sports. Yeah. There was no sports on TV at all. Right. And me and my son were watching marble races of all things <laughs> and getting into it. I know it's the competition. I found out about them. Well, actually I was, I was just kind of going through uh, YouTube one day and there were marble races. So I just clicked on them. I'm like, wow, these are interesting especially the guy who does the color oh yeah it's great the play-by-play is awesome (laughs) play-by-play but um john oliver um decided to sponsor this year's marble olympics oh really so yeah so that's when i started watching we've been watching every week oh i have to start watching that now oh it's so good and you find yourself rooting for for certain color marbles it's the strangest thing well we we chose they had an opening ceremony and we chose our favorite team and, you know, now we're rooting for our teams. All right. Just a way to kill time. The Marble Olympics. The Marble Olympics. So the theme of signals, Jer, what do you think it is? Uh, communication, right? Okay. Or maybe could also be like not only just communication, but the lack of communication, the lack. It's called signals, but it could also be signals that are missed. Not just everything that's received, you know? Mm-hmm. I found an interview on Power Windows website, our buddy Eric Hansen. This interview was transcribed by John Petuto of Cygnus X1. So as we mentioned before, those two guys working together very well. Yep. And it was an interview from 1982 from Music Express by someone named Greg Quill. And he asked Neil about the cyclical framework of signals. He said it opens up in suburbia on the edge of the far unlit unknown, contemplates escape in the analog kid, and explores universal human imponderables, the essence of our humanity, sex, religion, old age, and then ends with an actual escape to the stars in Countdown. Wow. He presented this to Neil, and Neil says, oh, you noticed that. We were hoping (laughs) no one would. It's so unfashionable these days to construct grand concepts. We're being closed mouth about it. Some people, and I don't expect there'll be many, will be insightful enough to catch that. Although it's interesting that you, the first writer I've talked to about this album, did pick up on it. That's incredible. I never picked up on that. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. I never thought about that at all. Yeah. It's very cool. Hmm. Maybe, maybe we should start the podcast over so I can <laughs> think about it. Well, the thing is, if I hadn't seen this and you asked me, I would have said the same thing you did. The wrong thing is what you're saying? <laughs> exactly the wrong thing so anyway yeah track one on signals jar yes subdivisions sprawling on the fringes of the city geomen 
So, Jar Subdivisions. I've got a quote from Neil. Okay. Let's hear it. Neil says, hugely autobiographical, of course. It was an important step for us. The first song written that was keyboard-based. The upside of that, people don't realize that it made Alex and I the rhythm section. So the first time he and I tuned into each other's parts was when Getty was playing the keyboards. Interesting. It was a great new way for us to relate. It's also a good example of us learning to go into time signature changes more fluidly. And again, wonderful to play live. It's challenging and always rewarding to play decently. So as Neil said about Tom Sawyer many times, could play subdivisions over and over and felt it was challenging every time. It's interesting that he thinks that they're only now getting better at the time signature changes. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Well, the the great thing about Neil is that he always strived to be better. Yep. Right to the very end. Mm -hmm. He never was satisfied and said, well, you know, I'm good enough now. Right. Even though he was plenty good enough after Fly By Night, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, of course. But he was always, always trying to get better. Always. Yeah. And I think it's a cool thing. You know, I never really thought about that, that Alex sort of became the rhythm section in this album in a lot of ways. Yeah, I never thought about that either. Boy, two things now. The the huge concept and now the rhythm section. But this this is why we're doing this. We're learning new things every time we talk about a different song, a different album. It's great. I wonder if that's like one of the subconscious things that people don't like about the album. You mean the fact that Alex kind of takes a back seat? Yeah. I mean, obviously the keyboards are there and people always say that Alex, you know, takes a back seat, but his role, no, he didn't take a back seat. He changed his role in the band. Yeah. Now, was that willingly or not? I would imagine it was willingly. Yeah. Maybe not when they got to hold your fire, maybe. Maybe that, you know, the. Right. It was, it was. It was willingly, I think, and then it just kind of progressed more and more toward that keyboard arena. Not that it's a bad thing. We love all those albums. Yep. But Alex, as a guitarist, perhaps didn't love them as much as we did listening to them. Make sense? It does. Do you have another quote? Here's another one from Neil. I didn't believe yet that I could put something real into a song. This was from an interview with Rolling Stone. Subdivisions happen to be an anthem for a lot of people who grew up under those circumstances. And from then on, I realized that what I most wanted to put in a song was human experience. So he felt like this was the first song he wrote about the human experience. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. And then after that, I mean, think about it. Uh, he wrote a lot of songs that way. Yeah. A lot of personal songs. Yeah about individuals and feelings and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So it was kind of a turning point for him lyrically. Yeah. Do you have anything, Jer? Yeah, I have a, uh, it's kind of, it might be a little lengthy, but it was written uh, by a guy named Hank Schmieder. Schmieder? Prob- might be mispronouncing that name. It was written, uh, you know, right after Neil passed away and it was in Rolling Stone. Okay. And it's called, it's called How Neil Peart's Perfectionism Set Him Free. Oh, wow. That's what the album is called. So I'm just going to read the first three um, paragraphs, if that's okay, because it's very interesting. Sure. Subdivisions, one of Rush's most beloved songs, is also one of their simplest, which I I agree, because I can actually play subdivisions on guitar. Not the solo, but all the chords. Very easy to play. Getty Lee's insistent synth riff 
gives the track a muted, almost drony quality. So you might hear it a hundred times before you realize what's going on just underneath the surface. That Neil Peart, the band's brilliantly obsessive super genius of a drummer, has gone to the trouble of crafting a different drum part for every single verse. Which he did a lot. Yeah. He starts the first one, sprawling on the fringes of the city, with a humble backbeat. Then, as Lee sings in geometric order, he switches to a busier, more lopsided pattern that almost seems to stumble along. The second time around, growing up, it all seems so one-sided. He begins with a spare, four-on-the-floor bass drum pulse, then moves, opinions all provided, to a kind of cyborg James Brown beat, devilishly syncopated and weirdly funky. The variations continue from there. Verse 3, drawn like moths, we drift into the city, features a cramped pattern interrupted by a weird jutting fill, while verse 4, some will sell their dreams or small desires, gallops away on a triumphant slamming snare kick groove. It's just something I had never really... I listened to the song with this in mind, and it's true. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. different even than a lot of other Rush songs. It's just so complicated so it must be impossible to play well that's what i was about to say is that you said it was simple now the guitar part may be simple the bass line may be simple the keyboard part may be simple but the drums right are not simple right and even before you read that you know i didn't think it was that complicated but clearly complicated on the drums yeah and then later on a couple of paragraphs later he says Peart's ever-morphing beats set against the song's cyclical, almost lulling form are that misfit dreamer railing against conformity, struggling to find a voice in a dreary and oppressive world. Like the Neil Peart aesthetic as a whole, the song's drumming is at once profoundly nerdy and totally exhilarating. Wow. Very well written. Yeah, it's a great article. That's awesome. Suggest everybody. Yeah, check that out. Find it. So why don't we go through the lyrics, Jer, and as we do that, we can... We can talk about the music as well. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. I mean, it starts out with, with the, the keyboards, which is, as I just mentioned, would be stunning for a Rush fan to hear. The first thing you hear in a Rush album, you don't expect to be that. Right. At least at that point. And it's not even like a, a clearer kind of sound, you know what I mean? That, that the keyboards and the Moog used on previous albums. It's heavy. Yeah. Thick. Dense. Yeah, and there's no bass, really. It's just nope. the keyboards. Yeah. And the guitars, they're there, but they're far in the background. Yeah. So it's real heavy keyboards and drums. Yeah. I mean, I think you asked, did you ask earlier why fans like us like all different aspects of their career? Yes, I've, I've asked that before. And I think it's because we didn't hear them in order. Right, right. Who knows what would have happened had we heard you know, hemispheres and then the moving pictures and then signals. Right. And and we may have dropped off the face of the earth too, as far as Rush goes, if we heard this yeah. and said, wait a minute, this isn't the Rush I know. Right. And the interesting thing is we've gotten emails from fans who told us that they were one of those fans. Yep. And that listening to our podcast has helped them go back and pick up Hold Your Fire and Power Windows and appreciate them, which I think is fantastic. It is. It is fantastic. Makes me feel like this was worth it. Even if one person did that, I would think it was worth it for us to do this. Really? Yeah, I know. It's very satisfying to hear that. Yeah, absolutely. The people are listening to what we say. Oh, boy. 
Right, but just not even listening to what we say and taking what we say is any sort of uh, great thing, but but just going back and listening to Rush and appreciating Rush more. Yeah. That's what I want people to do, not appreciate us. No, nah, we, we get enough, enough appreciation <laughs> in our daily lives. So, Joe, the lyrics, I mean. The lyrics. These could be Neil's greatest lyrics. <laughs> I knew you were going to say know, something I, like I that. I know, I keep saying <laughs> stupid things like that, but but it's up there, right? Oh, it's absolutely up there. It is absolutely up there. What I've always noticed about this song is that it, it starts off centered on suburbs, then the people in the suburbs, and then people getting out of the suburbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a self-contained little story. Mm-hmm. I just love the way this first paragraph describes the suburbs in such a perfect way. I know. In between the bright lights, which of course is the city. Yep. I'm assuming Toronto and the far unlit unknown, which is way out past the suburbs. Right. Past the lights of the city. Yeah. Yeah. Sprawling on the fringes of the city in geometric order, an insulated border. <laughs> I love that line too. An insulated border because it's like a, you know, you don't get whatever kind of vibrancy that the city has right. in the suburbs. You're right. insulated from it. Mm-hmm. There's like a demarcation somewhere between the suburb and the city. Right. You've got to go into the city to experience that vibrancy in life. Yeah. And like you said, in between the bright lights and the far unlit unknown. Yeah. You're kind of like in, in this middle zone. Yeah. You know, things may be better out in the far unlit unknown too. They might be. Yeah. More peaceful. Yeah. And then growing up, it all seems so one-sided. Opinions all provided, the future pre-decided, detached and subdivided in the mass production zone. (laughs) That is, you know, the mass production zone is obviously probably like references to maybe, uh, you know, the kind of suburbs where every house looks the same, like Levittown or something like that. Yep, exactly. I think what he's saying here is just the uniformity of the suburbs, not only the way they look, but the houses people live in, what they think. All of that. Yep. What they tell their children to think. Yep. What they decide their children's future is going to be. Mm-hmm. Which leads right into the next part. Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. Right. Someone who thinks differently doesn't fit in here. That's true. Yeah. Now, you and I grew up in the suburbs, Steve. We did. Do you feel like this? I think so, in a way. You don't? I don't know. I guess so. I mean, I was thinking the other day about, you know, when the kids grow up and get out of the house, where we're going to move. Yeah. And I was thinking it would be cool to move and in, move into the city for a while for the hell of it. Why not? Right. Okay. But I would miss all of the space in the suburbs. Do you know what I mean? See, I'm the opposite of you. I want to go where there's even more space and less people. <laughs> that's what I want. I want to be, I want to live in the far unlit unknown. Jim. That's where I want to go. You can go to the bright lights. I'm going to the far unlit unknown. Well, I, well, I don't know how happy I would be there because like I said, I like, I like having a yard. I like having rooms to go to. I don't know how, how I would fare in a one bedroom apartment after living in the suburbs my whole life. Now the suburbs I picture in this song aren't the suburbs that you and I grew up in or the ones that we live in now. I'm thinking of apartment buildings and, you know, like not city apartment buildings, but just like people more closely just packed in. 
Yeah. Just people just packed in on top of each other. I, I picture the type of suburb like from the, from the fifties. Oh, okay. Where every house kind of looks the same. Everybody goes to the same school. Everybody gets taught the same, whatever. Everybody, everybody goes to the same church. Right, exactly. And if you don't think the way that everybody else thinks, then you are a misfit and you are alone. Right. Conform or be cast out. Right. So did you find out who says the word subdivisions? Well, you know, I was going to get to that next. I've read two different things about it. The first thing I read was that Neil does the spoken word in subdivisions. The second thing I read is that it's Mark Daly. He is the voice of Toronto's TV station, City TV, and also the voice of much music. Now, this is according to Robert Teleria, the author of Merely Players. Oh, that's one I haven't heard of. Yeah, I, I don't know how true this is. I mean, I would tend to believe that. The guy wrote a book about Rush. You would think he did his research. But I've also read in a couple of places that Neil is the one who does it. Mm. What do you come up with? Nothing. I would tend to think that it's this Mark Daly guy. Why? Because I think the reason people think it's Neil is because he mouths the words in the video. Oh. So people probably assume it's him saying subdivisions yeah. because he, he's saying it in the video. Yeah. But somebody had to say it in the video, and I guess they didn't want to have this guy Mark Daly in their video. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that, that's, that's what I got. I'm sure our listeners will email us and tell us. Yeah. Maybe some will say one, some will say the other. I don't know. Or something completely different. Perhaps. So the chorus, subdivisions. See, this is why I think the, the sub, this is a subdivision, you know, like Levittown or something like that, where it's very uniform in, mm -hmm. in, you know, that way. Because in the high school halls, in the shopping malls, conform or be cast out. Subdivisions in the basement bars, in the backs of cars, be cool or be cast out. And I always thought that that line in the backs of cars is like almost peer pressure to have sex. You think? Did you ever get that? Yeah, I think it is. Now in, in the video, I don't know if you recall the video. Yeah. There's just kids in the back of the car. They're not having sex. No, not yet anyway. <laughs> but, the, but I think you're probably right. That that's probably it. Right. What else could it be referring to? I don't know. And the basement bars and the backs of cars be cool or be cast out. And then, then we hit any escape might help to smooth the unattractive truth. And what, what is the unattractive truth? That we're stuck in the suburbs for the rest of our <laughs> lives, right? We're never Probably. getting out of here. Any escape, even, even getting to the city for one night helps to smooth this unattractive truth that I'm going to be here for the rest of my life and miserable. Right. That's how I interpret that. So you think this, the escape is a, is a physical escape from the suburbs? Yes. Or, or maybe, or could be a mental escape. Yeah. It could be anything. Yeah. Any escape, Jer. Right. Any escape could mm -hmm. be drugs or alcohol, anything mm -hmm. that gets your mind off the mind numbing life you're living. Yeah. But th that's true. I mean, I was thinking physical escape, but you could be right. Could be just putting on an album and putting headphones on to just yeah. escape from this uh, suburban living, at least in my mind for a few minutes. Yeah. But the suburbs have no charms to soothe. The restless dreams of youth. <laughs> this is a pretty, very, very critical song about growing up. Well, clearly Neil, when he was in this situation, felt that this is about him. There's no question. 
Yeah, no question about it. No question about it. And he felt like he needed to get out and see, see the city or the far and lit unknown or London like he did. Yeah. Just to see what was out there. And he, he has talked about being kind of like a, like a misfit when he was growing up. Mm-hmm. Being very shy. Yep. He didn't feel like he fit in with those groups in the backs no. of cars and in the basement bars. Right. But as you said, I think it's the, in the basement bars is the peer pressure to drink, right? Yep. Uh-huh. In the backs of cars is the peer pressure to have sex, as you said, right? Yep. So I think that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. And then we go back to another verse, right? Drawn like moths, we drift into the city. That's my favorite <laughs> line of the song. It is. It's so perfect because moths, they're chasing the moon in reality. Mm-hmm. They think that the light on your porch is the moon because they navigate by the, by moonlight. So they're lost when they're banging up against the light on your porch. Right. And that's kind of what, what how these people are. They're drawn like moths. We drift into the city. They're not, they're looking for anything, man, but they're not even like consciously acting. They're drifting. Mm-hmm. Just kind of going toward anything that looks shiny just because they want a distraction. Anything better than hanging here for another night. Yeah, really, man. <laughs> no, with you, it's fine, Steve. I'm just saying. No, you know what I mean. I'm talking about <laughs> Neil back in his teenage right. years. Yeah. And it's, so it's drawn like malls. We drift into the city. The timeless old attraction cruising for the action. Lit up like a firefly just to feel the living night. You know, he hits on so many parts of of being young like what is the deal steve with with driving around cruising for the action because you and i when when we were younger that was an, a, a night out driving around that's all we did right we we used to we both had had different jobs and we get out of work at what like 10 o'clock at night yep and then we'd go home and take a shower and then we'd go out and just drive anywhere or go to the inkwell we go to the Inkwell in Long Branch, shout out to the Inkwell, and just <laughs> hang out there for hours. Yeah. But what is it? What is it about just driving around? That's an activity in itself. Yeah. Just not being in the, just not being in the house with your parents, I guess. Yeah. That's the reason I wanted to get out. He just captures that so perfectly, cruising for the action. Yeah. And lit up like a firefly just to feel the living night. Yeah. Just anything. The night is alive in the city. It is. And it's dead in the suburbs. That's how I interpret that. Yeah, right. And fireflies, you know, they're communicating to each other. Mm-hmm. They're tr- they were tr- trying to attract other fireflies. So that's what you're doing in this. That's what these people are doing in the city anyway. Yep. The timeless old attraction, cruising for the action, lit up like a firefly. You know, and when we cruised for the action, Jar, we never really did find any action, did we? We never found any action. (laughs) Never. We were always cruising for it, though. We were, oh boy, were we cruising for it in the Cordoba. In the Cordoba. Those were the days. I wish I I had that kind of free time now. Yeah, I know. And I mean, basically all we were doing at that time was listening to Rush. Yeah. While we were driving around. (laughs) That's it. What's better than that, though? I wish we had time to do that now. I know. But you know, the next verse, a listener named Brian sent me an email about this last verse. Really? Yeah. And explained it in a way I had never thought about before. 
Do you want me to just read what he said? Yeah, I just love the fact that our listeners are getting ahead of us now. and They are. Sending us stuff about albums we haven't talked about. This is great. Right. And he says, I assume the great signals is up soon. I just wanted to get ahead of you and note something about subdivisions. One thing I've always found interesting about this song, though, and the reason I'm writing, is the final verse. This one kind of gets left out thematically when the song is parsed, which I think is true because I, I never thought of it this way. Anyway, some will sell their dreams or small desires or lose the race to rats, get caught in ticking traps and start to dream of somewhere to relax their restless flight, somewhere out of a memory of lighted streets on quiet nights. He says, this to me indicates that Neo realizes the pull that the suburbs have. Despite spending the entire song in a critical vein, he recognizes that those suburban outcasts grow up, join the rat race of the working world, and they start to long for a peace outside of their working lives. And lo and behold, the suburbs await deep in their unconscious. It's almost as if he's suggesting that though many people find the suburbs boring and stifling, there is an undeniable pull to go back, effectively setting up a cyclical nature. Wow. I never thought of it that way, but that makes total sense. I know. I never thought about that before. Thanks so much for that email. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. That's great. I mean, that changed my, I, I have to say, I don't think I ever really fully understood where somewhere out of a memory of lighted streets or quiet nights meant it comes directly from, from the lyrics before it, right? They start to dream of somewhere to relax their restless flight and where they're dreaming of is somewhere out of a memory of lighted streets on quiet nights, different from the bustling city. Mm -hmm. Well, there are a lot of people who, when they're younger, they go move into New York City, or in your case, you moved to Hoboken, which is basically New York City. That's true. And where'd you end up? Back in the suburbs. Yeah, back in the suburbs. Because you wanted to raise a family, and who wants to raise a family in Hoboken? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Right? I mean, seriously, Hoboken... Everybody's in their 20s. Yeah, it's true. And when you were there, how old were you? I was in my 20s. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, the thing is, is, as you grow older, you know, your, your teenage dreams and the things about the suburbs that you hated, the stifling kind of atmosphere, you know, you get a, a certain nostalgia yeah. for the way that you grew up. Mm -hmm. And so you want your children to experience the things you remember experiencing whether or not it actually happened that way and like and like brian said it's a it's a cycle starts all over again yeah you move you're you don't like the suburbs because of the the atmosphere you move someplace else for a while then you realize that it's too busy for you or that or you're in the rat race yeah and then, so you move back and then your children think the same thing yep we should have interviewed our children for this, or at least yours there a little bit later. <laughs> I could. I could go grab her if you want. There, there you go. There she you go. would never. <laughs> <laughs> and for those not in the New York City area, Hoboken is, is a city in New Jersey right across the river from New York City. Yeah. So It's like a 10-minute yeah. ride. 10-minute ride on the train. So musically, Jer... I mean, I've got to say again, and I know I say this every time, the solo, Alex's solo is incredible. I mean, I know he takes a back seat during the song itself, but then he just jumps into the forefront. And it comes right after a keyboard solo. Yep. And it's almost as if he's like, you know, he listens to the keyboard solo and was just like, okay, well, hold my beer. 
<laughs> I'm gonna, you think, okay, okay, Getty, I'm really going to show you how, how solos go. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. And the other thing that jumps out at me is the drums, as you mentioned. Yeah. At the end, where Neil is banging on those cymbals, and it's just yeah. this, this crescendo ending. just fabulous it is fabulous it is one of my favorite rush songs i think you know you were always talking about your 30 songs in your top 10 <laughs> i think that this is definitely one of my top 10 we definitely have to do this soon i think after we do signals before we get into grace under pressure we'll give our listeners time to send us emails about grace under pressure okay so we can collect their thoughts we should do our top 10 list we have to do it you don't want to wait till the end? No, I don't think so. After we discuss all of the songs, just in case some of those later songs are on there? You want to keep people waiting that long? <laughs> we could do yes. it. Yes. We could do it. All right. Anything else on subdivisions, Jerry? We could talk all day. Uh, yeah, we almost did. <laughs> we had planned to talk about a few more songs, but we ran out of time. I think so. I think we're done. I mean, I, I, I was ready to talk about the analog kid. Yeah next time but i don't know if we should we talk so long no we can we can't are we gonna break this album into four parts <laughs> like we did with moving pictures is that possible it might be three <laughs> three parts well you know what we'll just play it by ear that's what we'll do we'll see how it goes that's how we do everything yep you can find us on twitter at rush fancast instagram we are the Rushcast. email jerry about signals about grace under pressure we're going to be talking about that next month probably let us know what you think rushcast at gmail.com thanks to Lex for the bass intro and thanks to Jerry for his quote and here it is yep and unsurprisingly it's from subdivisions I'm not surprised at all <laughs> nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone thanks Jerry alright thank you take it easy bye